I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Okay, guys, and welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. And with me, of course, is Steve. Hey, guys. And we're with Neil from the Thylacine Awareness Group. Welcome, Neil. G'day. And, Neil, tell us a little bit, what is the Thylacine Awareness Group? Uh, The Thylacine Awareness Group is a group that I started off about three years ago, um, basically to raise awareness about the possible existence of thylacines on mainland Australia rather than just in Tasmania. So it's a group on Facebook primarily, um, but we also have uh, quite a few members that are actively pursuing looking for thylacines both in Tasmania and on the mainland. And all up, we've got about 100 people that are out there searching passively, some more intensely than others. And we started off as the Thylacine Awareness Group of South Australia. And when I decided that we were going to go international with some of our bold claims with videos and bits and pieces, uh, we decided to call it the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia and be that little bit more inclusive and um, try and cover more ground. When you say thylacines on the mainland, what leads you to think that they're here? A couple of things. Um, largely, there there has been over 5,000 sightings on the mainland in the last 100-odd years, which is pretty significant. Um, so that's basically three times as many sightings as what there's been in Tasmania since extinction, well, since not extinction, but since Benjamin died in Beaumaris Zoo in 1936. So... Um, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> what, um, like you're talking, there's a hundred people out there searching for these animals. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, what, what's triggered this activity? Well, I moved to Tasmania in 2010 and I was living in a place called South Mount Cameron, which is in the remote northeast of Tasmania, about two hours from Launceston. And I got followed by an animal for about 15, 20 minutes when I was walking the dog over by the lake there. And it was quite noisy following me, but it was basically stalking me and following me. And I could hear it, but I couldn't see it because the undergrowth was quite thick. And I got to a clearing and I was yelling out to my dog because my dog took off after a wallaby chasing it. And yelling out to my dog, and it didn't deter this animal in any way, shape or form. It still kept following me and I could hear it. And I was getting a little bit anxious. The hair on the back of my neck was standing up. And so I got to this clearing around the bend and I'm yelling out for my dog. And all of a sudden, this animal came out from behind the tea tree and sort of sat up right behind a clump of grass. And I could see the top of its head and its round ears. And I tried to get closer to it and I got probably... Oh, about 15 metres away from it and I got too close and then it decided it didn't want to follow me anymore and it took off and when it took off I saw the full side of it I didn't see any stripes but it had a very um, distinct long stiff tail and it was dark brown in colour it was probably about an hour before dark so it was on that sort of orangey dusky sort of light so the lighting wasn't perfect but uh, it basically looked like a thylacine to me, and from what I learnt since then, um, it was behaving like a thylacine too. So that really was a profound moment for me, and that triggered a whole series of events 
uh, primarily I, I spoke to the mechanic in town and he said, oh, you should go and meet this guy, Andrew. You'd be uh, better off for knowing him. So I went and met this guy, Andrew, and he showed me a whole heap of photos of some pretty convincing shots that he's got from trail cams over the last 10 or 20 years. And, um, yeah, he's got some really good photos of thylacines and he gave me a bit of a breakdown on what I should be looking for with feet and different bits and pieces with footprints and stuff and what their scats look like. And that sort of... I didn't really do a lot after that. It took about four years for things to really get crazy. Um, and then in 2014, I went back down to do a bit of work on my house and... Um, it was even though it was summer and it was you know warm it's still cold at night in Tassie so I had the fire on um, but it was getting a bit warm in the house so I went into my bedroom to open up the French windows to let a bit of fresh air in as I was looking out the window it was a pretty well lit night with the moonlight a uh, young thylacine came walking past the house down this track that comes out of an old tin mine behind my house and I spotted it as plain as plain as night because <laughs> it wasn't day but yeah, it was very obvious and very clear. It had that real peculiar gait about it as it was sort of trottling along. So then I was really interested in thylacines and I went back to Adelaide in South Australia and started doing a bit of research online and discovered that there was a whole swather of information um, about thylacines on the mainland, which I had no idea about. I always thought they were just a Tasmanian thing. Um, but apparently not. So I started investigating it, um, was on Facebook, joined a couple of groups, ran into a few uh, people on some of those groups that I thought were a little bit pugnacious and obnoxious. So by the end of 2014, I thought, bugger this, I'll start my own group. So that was how it all started, really, and it's just snowballed from, I think we had 300 members before we released our first video and now we've got nearly 7,200 members so it's grown and grown and grown and continues to grow and just gets crazier and crazier every day. That's fantastic. I want to, I want to talk about how we met um, but just before we do, you, you, the listeners can probably tell there's a bit of wind and, and bird noises in the background. Set the scene. Set the you. scene. We're out in a stringy bark woodland right now. Where, where are we right now? You've brought us here, Neil. Uh, we're at a place called Jupiter Creek uh, which is an old gold diggings area in the Adelaide Hills, not too far from Achunga. And the reason why I wanted to bring you out here is because we basically had a, a string of sightings from out this area. Um, we had one on this very road here in April last year, one evening, when a fellow was walking back from Jupiter Creek back to Achunga with his son. This thing came out and scared the crap out of him, came out of the roadside veg. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a hot spot. There's lots of game out here for... A, predator to eat there's lots of uh, deer and kangaroos and foxes and bits and pieces around a few rabbits still so um it's a bit of a hot spot out here i get a lot of sightings over the years doing you know my my work with wildlife and people come up to me and ask me what's the striped animal that lives you know over here or over there and you know well i don't know it sounds like they're describing a thylacine to me and then i met you and i thought all these stories that I've received over the years, you're a person that collaborates this information, takes it seriously, and does, in fact, research this information. And that, that's how we met. And one of the sightings was pretty close to Adelaide. That fella that you introduced us to, um, Martin, I won't say his surname, but he chooses to not be part of the whole frenzy that I'm in, but that's all good. Um, he actually, it was his son who filmed that 
that first animal in that video that we released on uh, National Threatened Species Day back in 2016. So uh, my connection with you and thylacines and Martin was a very poignant part of the uh, chain, actually. It was very significant and important, obviously meant to happen. Meant to happen. Um, <laughs> we should probably, before we get too, too into this, what, what are we talking about with a thylacine? It's a marsupial dog-looking animal. It's one of nature's um, peculiarities, I guess. It's called convergent evolution. Um, and originally I think it was a bipedal animal that used to hop around and slowly but surely over a few hundred million years it's decided it wants to run on all fours. So it looks like a dog, it acts like a cat and from what we can gather from historical documents and witness statements it runs like a horse. So it's a real peculiar animal but it is a uh, marsupial so it has a pouch, has a backward facing pouch, a bit like a wombat and a few other smaller marsupials have a backward pouch. I think bandicoots have a backward-facing pouch, do they? Yeah, bilbies. Bilbies. Um, it has four teats in the pouch, so it can have up to four young. Um, usually somewhere between 16 and 20 stripes, if they're striped. They're not all striped, from what I've learnt over the years. Um, average size is up to about 30 kilos, 40 kilos, I think, for a full adult male. Um, some of them that were shot in Tasmania back in the early days were recorded to be quite large. Some of the males got to about six foot long from tip to tip, which is a pretty decent sized animal. Uh, the females are a little bit smaller. Males tend to have a buffy sort of head where the females have a narrower sort of muzzle, so they're not as broad across the face. Um, and females are naturally a little bit smaller as well. From what we've learned, I um, feel pretty confident in saying that they don't breed every year. They probably breed every two to three years. They're slow growing, um, and I don't think the juveniles are ready to leave mum and dad till they're somewhere between three and three and a half years old. Um, they're often observed in Tasmania as a family group, not a pack like dogs, but a family group. So there'll be mum and dad, and there might be um, two or three, two to three year old juveniles running with mum and dad, and she might also have a couple of fresh ones in the pouch as well. Um, so they. They don't breed prolifically. I think um, that probably helped speed up their de decline when the bounty was on them in Tasmania because they mate for life, as far as I'm aware, from what we've learnt. Um, and they uh, pair up. From what we've also learnt from Dr Bob Paddle as well from his research, um, they probably live for at least 15, 20 years uh, in captivity. There, there was one in... London Zoo that lived for 18 years and there was also one that Bob tracked that was definitely five years old and it was still talked about as being a juvenile so if it's five years old and it's not fully grown the chances of it dying at roughly seven or eight years like other um, Dasyurus species mm. like quolls and things is probably pretty remote I think they live for at least 15 years mm, makes sense well tiger quolls they they can continue growing until they're about three and they'll live about seven years so it yeah makes sense so they're they're a peculiar looking thing they run kind of awkward M many of the sightings that we get probably about 90 percent of the sightings that we get that we think are pretty spot on they nearly always mention the peculiar gait it ran like it was drunk or injured or sort of staggered the way it ran it was it's it's obvious it's still going through that evolutionary thing of being a quadruped from being a biped and um, 
that gate thing is is something that stands out with people nearly every single time. It's interesting, isn't it? So, so the gate is just the way that it moves its legs, what fashion it runs in. Yeah, so um, when they're walking and they're ambling, like if you look at the old footage of Benjamin in Hobart Zoo, he's walking like any other four-legged animal because he's in a confined space. But when they get up a bit of speed, they have been observed doing a canter and also what I think is a rotary gallop as well. So, And a lot of the earlier pioneers in Tasmania that talked about them in their diaries and their notes and things often described them with that horse terminology. You think about it, early pioneers were very reliant on horses. That was their tractor, that was their ute, that was everything, the horse. So they knew horses, they knew horse terminology and husbandry. So it would make sense that if they described it as a trotting animal or a cantering animal, they know what a trot is, they know what a canter is. And I think that's very significant when it comes to, you know, trying to decipher some of these sightings that we get. A lot of people actually use the same terminology today. It was cantering along or it was trotting along. So they recognise that gait in the animals now, even, you know, allegedly, 80-odd um, years after they became officially demised. When I see old footage, it's always in a zoo. Is there any old footage of an animal in the environment? Not that I'm aware of, no. The door footage? That's different because that's you know, not definitely a thylacine. It's allegedly a thylacine. It looks like a thylacine. It runs like a thylacine. Um, just, but, just for those that don't the door footage, when, where was that filmed? Yeah? Uh, the door footage was filmed in Wilpena Pound in 1973. Uh, Gary and Liz Doyle were on holiday in South Australia as it was. They were on their honeymoon. People can find that on YouTube? Yep, that's on YouTube. Um, it's also in our documentary as well. They gave us permission to use it. Um, so Gary and Liz Doyle were on their honeymoon. They're driving into Wilpena Pound Caravan Park at about three in the afternoon. And they just happened to be filming with one of those little old eight millimeter cameras that people used to have, the very early versions of home movie cameras back in the early 70s, late 60s. We had one at home. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, as they were driving in, this animal just darted out in front of them. And they got about 12 seconds of footage at normal speed. And uh, it's moving pretty quick. And it definitely has that unusual... It's almost like a double step with the back feet. So they don't quite come off at the same time. But it's almost like it's hopping on the back feet while it's running with its front feet. It's really weird. Um, But it's pretty good footage. Uh, It's probably been regarded as the best footage there is for a long time. I think more recently there's been a couple of videos that have come out that excuse me, are equal to it for the bit of bits of evidence that it gives out. Uh, Paul Day's footage from Moonta last year was brilliant because it was filmed with good quality equipment and he just had his camera sitting there on a tripod filming sunrise and this thing just walked past in the line of uh, vision. So that was very lucky footage. And again, it's got that peculiar gait with the back feet pushing off at almost the same time. And good thing about Paul Day's footage is One of the experts, Dr Christopher Helgen from Adelaide University, has confirmed that it's definitely not a fox. So all of the naysayers that think we're all chasing mangy foxes will have to uh, pipe up on that one. He he then turned around and said it's probably a lame dog, (laughs) but it's definitely not a fox, so that ruled that one out. I'll take you back, Neil, to your first one that you saw um, down in Tassie. Um, Did you instantly think 
that that was a thylacine, or, or yeah. was it after and you had no, to sort I of learn? No, I did. I did. Um, so you knew a bit about them before? I, I knew en- enough about them to know what they looked like. Right. Um, and I was in a pretty remote area where my house is, and it behaved like... I mean, foxes don't generally stalk you for 15 minutes. They're pretty flighty. You do get the odd, very tame fox, but there's no foxes in Tassie. They've proved that, even though they've wasted $50 million looking for them. Um, So, yeah, I was quite convinced that it was a thylacine. I was just shocked that it was a dark chocolate brown colour. But when I spoke to Andrew down there, he did confirm to me that they're not all fawn in colour. They're not all striped, or sometimes the stripes aren't obvious depending on the time of year and the angle and the lighting of the, the daytime and things like that. Um, and the behaviour, they were known to stalk people. They're curious. You're in their area, they come and check you out. You don't have to go looking for them. If you hang around their area long enough, they will come and have a look at you. So, so the stripes are always there, but sometimes certain times of the year they're covered up more with fur, winter... I, I don't know that they're always there. This is the really sad thing about thylacines. No one bothered to study them before they became officially mm. sort of non-existent. Just everything the museums have got. Have I haven't stripes. seen... There's one specimen in Germany in a museum that's got very faded stripes. Wild caught? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't think it was uh, captive bred. Um but, yeah, it's it's got very, very faint stripes. That's the only taxiderm that I'm aware of that doesn't have stripes. But, again, I've got lots of sightings of ones without stripes. And when you speak to the Adyamutna people from the Flinders Ranges, they will also tell you that there's ones out there without stripes as well. Yeah. So the stripes aren't the be-all and end-all. They don't always present stripes. Um, if you think about Kevin Cameron's photos from Western Australia from 1984... They had broad bands. They weren't what I'd call stripes. It was more banded. Like, you know, I'm talking probably three, four-inch wide stripes rather than thin stripes on a Tasmanian specimen. But I've been ridiculed by many people online for suggesting that there might be variations within the species because I'm not qualified to make those sort of assertions. But, bah. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? So you, you mentioned the Adnamutna people. You, you, you've talked to... Indigenous people about their sightings and their dreamtime stories about thylacines, people on the mainland. Your doco starts off with an interview. With yeah, um, Regina McKenzie from the uh, Flinders Rangers from up Hawkeway, she was very helpful and very keen to give us an education in regards to their knowledge on thylacines, which we were very appreciative of. What's the word she uses for the animal? Um, I'll, I'll try and get the pronunciation right. No I'm no expert, but it's Mulkeri. Mulkari. Mulkari. Sorry, Regina, if I've got that wrong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Mulkari. And they've also got a word for um, thylacaleo too, which is Indrakuli. So these animals have been a part of their culture from year dot, which is somewhere between 40 and 60,000 years old, give or take a few hundred years. They've been on their country since year dot. They've never been taken away from their land. They know their land. They know their stories. They know their language. They know their animals, um, and these these animals are part of their dreaming. They're part of their now. They're, they're not just in their dreamtime stories. They're part of their current lifestyle, their life cycle, where they are now in in their in their living history. So, you know, and Regina makes a really good point about about the animal in the doco, where she says, you know, when an animal is extinct, we don't talk about it. Just the same with people, when they die, they don't mention their names anymore, out of respect and whatever other you know, spiritual beliefs why they don't do that. 
but they still say Mulkari all the time because they know they're there. They've seen them. They've seen, you know, Regina's had about three or four sightings in her lifetime and one of them was with her mum and her daughter as well at the time. Um, so, you know, you've got to respect people's knowledge and you know, the Indigenous people of this country have got far more knowledge about the animals and plants than we'll ever ascertain. Couldn't so, agree more. Yeah, we, we got a lot of really helpful and useful information about thylacines from Regina and her brother um, to the point where she told us there were six different species originally. One was a big black one. There was white ones with black stripes. There was all black ones. There was, I mean, I've, I've seen pelts of brown, grey, um, fawn and a red as well. So I've seen personally four different coloured pelts just with museum specimens and things. Well, we know there are other species in the thylacine family. There were some the size of cats that were arboreal, like quolls, but they don't have that quoll face. They've got more that really long thylacine mouth. Um, and there are ones as big as 70 kilos, so about double the size of the today's thylacine. I don't want to find one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a doco, Neil. Um, how do people find out about your doco? We've got a shop online on Etsy um, so if you go to Etsy and just type in thylacine you'll find the thylacine awareness group of Australia's shop uh, we also have um, a YouTube channel with a few of our short videos on there the documentary is called Living the Thylacine Dream um, which is a bit of a play on words because I suppose I'm living the dream now just running around chasing them and we like to think that it's out there living so that's a sort of a double meaning there um, but it goes for about an hour, 20 minutes. It's $25 to buy, $10 for postage and handling. So it's about 35 bucks to buy online. So far, we've only had two bad reviews and about 130 really good reviews. So people seem to be happy with it. We've tried to approach the subject with a minimum of BS and to keep it down to the basic facts that we have and whatever theories we might have come up with along the way with support from a couple of people. Uh, one of them being Dr. Bob Paddle, the other one being John Barry, who's a paleontologist. Uh, who had a snake named after him. He did. He found it, the Wanambi Barry Eye. Barry Eye. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got a couple of learned people in there with a few bits and pieces to back up our claims, and which is useful. Don't just watch it because I'm on there. Well, <laughs> you're, you, you just had to be on there, Adrian. It was just a must. <laughs> The big mention. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so if somebody wants to be part of the Thylacine Awareness Group and they want to get involved, um, what would you say to them? What can they do to be involved? Um, well, it's not difficult. If Most people are on social media these days. We're on Facebook. We're the largest Thylacine group on Facebook um, at this point in time. Not that that means anything, but we've got a lot of followers. Um, got about 1600 followers on our youtube channel and there's you know a lot of people are interested in it a lot of people think we're crazy and i've had all sorts of confrontations online and been accused of many different things just because of what i'm promoting and what i believe and oddly enough a lot of academics get really upset when you're not an academic and you go doing something that traditionally academics are the only people that do it which I don't know why they feel threatened or insulted or whatever, but there is a thing called uh, urban science. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love science. We wouldn't have airplanes without it. But 
citizen science. We should be encouraging people to get out there and look and listen Absolutely. and be bush detectives, you know, bushcraft with um, camera traps, and hey, they might they might learn new behaviours of uh, animals that they weren't targeting. Well, the key thing that I wanted to really promote with the group when I started the group off originally was awareness. The name is is it awareness? Just making people aware of it. Um, and so many people that joined the group still say, you know, to this day, um, you know, I had no idea that it was on the mainland until we saw one. And they're, you know, profoundly shocked by what they've seen. And they go looking and they find us and they tell us their stories and we don't ridicule them. We support them. And, you know, we, we take them on face value and they're not used to that because most people who see cryptid type animals or things that are meant to be extinct usually get ridiculed for coming out and saying what they saw. And historically, the media has been a big part of that. But I'm pleased to say that for the last 18 months, we've had some really good press. The media is actually swinging in our favour and they're not nowhere near as narrow-minded as what they used to be. We've just got to get the scientists to catch well, up. I believe Queensland University recently launched a hunt for the thylacine. That's a really interesting thing. Now, from all I know about universities is... You don't get a grant to go looking for an extinct animal without some form of evidence. But allegedly, they're basing their whole research on two sightings from 30-odd years ago. Go figure. When I spoke to the South Australian Museum, they said, look, we love what you're doing. You've got our support. You've got our backing. But until you find some evidence, we can't help you. Find me some evidence, then we'll be able to get some grants and we'll get some money and we'll do something. So we're doing that. We're looking for the evidence. So I don't believe for one minute that James Cook University hasn't got any evidence because I've heard rumours of at least two roadkill thylacines that were given to that university over the last 10 years. I think they're telling porky pies, and I'm happy to go on the record and say that. Uh, I think they've got some sort of evidence because how else did they get funding? That's the big question that I haven't heard anyone ask them yet. I'd love to ask them that myself and hear their answer and explanation for how they got funding to look for an animal that's been extinct on the mainland for 2,000 years without any evidence. Tune in next week, folks, from James Cook University. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in, in this work, and obviously people from all walks of life come to you with stories and sightings, and you, you document all of it. Um, has there been anything, anything else that has been a bit mysterious? Yeah, I've, I've got some really strange sightings. You can take them or leave them. I've got a couple of big hairy men sightings, one from the Adelaide Hills. Um, <laughs> that wasn't you? No, it wasn't me. No, no I was okay, home at the okay. time. Wanted to clear that up. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've got another big hairy man sighting from out past Tali. And that wasn't you? That wasn't me no, either. No. I'm not known cool. to venture that far north of Adelaide very often. Um, and if I do, I've usually got my clothes on, so people can't tell exactly how hairy I am. Uh, I've also got Thylacoleo sightings. I've got just want to sorry Thylacoleo, the marsupial lion. Yeah, marsupial lion is a Thylacoleo related to a possum, but was a hunter. Also allegedly extinct since that was before about ten thousand years ago. Yeah, they reckon least a scene. That's a little while ago before the ice age. Mm. So there's some interesting stories about those guys jumping out of trees and scaring the hell out of people, and I think. Sightings of Thylacoleo are the basis for the drop bear sightings that started in the 1800s and have now been turned into a joke by the media. Um, and, you know, that, that's not a bad thing. I mean, we were all entitled to have a bit of a laugh, but, you know, we talk about drop bears as being some sort of killer koala, but the, the, the animals actually related to koalas and wombats. 
and um, yeah, some of the sightings of those things are pretty, pretty full on. Uh, we also get sightings of big black cats. We probably, I don't know, I've probably had at least 30 or 40 sightings of big black, cat, big black cats in South Australia. That's not including Victoria and New South Wales. There's hundreds of sightings of them in Victoria and Western Australia as well. Uh, and when you go down the southeast of South Australia, there's also quite a few. Just about everyone's got a big black cat sighting or knows someone that's seen one. Um, some of those sightings, people have said it looked like a big black cat from a distance, but when it got close, it looked like a giant quoll or a large possum. So that throws it a little bit more into the strange marsupial realm rather than a, f- a feline, which is interesting. Um, you know, it's a big country. There's a lot of space that we just don't venture into, even in the Adelaide Hills. You know, we're right next to the largest patch of bushland in the Adelaide Hills here. The largest remaining patch of vegetation in the Adelaide Hills is 300 metres through there, and it's got permanent water in it. And, and a lot of game running around in there. People don't go in there. People don't go in there. You're not allowed in there. So who knows what's running around in there? Um, I've also got a giant lizard sighting as well, and the guy reckons it was crossing a dirt road, and when it crossed the road, it's basically covered the entire width of the dirt road when it crossed the road. That was down the southeast. So who knows? <laughs> Whether it was a oversized goanna on steroids or <laughs> or something else, we don't know. But um, that same fella gave me two thylacine sightings from the same spot near Salt Creek. Um, they were about two years apart, but at the same time of day, he used to be a beekeeper. And he used to keep his hives out the back of Salt Creek. And the first time he pulled up and he saw two thylacines uh, feeding on a fresh roadkill kangaroo on the side of the road and he watched them for about a minute and a half in the headlights and they looked at him and they just kept feeding and then a semi came along and that spooked him and they took off and then about two years later he drove through the same spot around the same time of day and saw another one crossing the road in exactly the same spot so you know multiple animal sightings always put a little bit more credibility to that whole mangy fox thing and when you've got multiple witnesses seeing the same thing at the same time that also adds a little few more bonus points to the validity of the of the sighting so you can say what you want about yowies and giant lizards but um i think it's pretty reasonable to think that thylacines are still out there incredibly elusive so so how how often are you getting sightings sent to you are they recent like well it's the last day of january now i've had three victorian sightings this year uh, two of them were in Ballarat. Actually, four, because the same girl saw one twice in the same area. And I've also had about, I think we're up to about nine in South Australia this year so far, so it's been pretty good. Um, mm. I haven't had any from WA or Queensland this year, but not to say that we won't. But I'd probably get, if you spread it out over the year, I'm probably getting about five a month all up. So and they're they're fresh new sightings. These aren't all old ones. I get a lot of old historical stuff sent to me. A lot of people want to tell me their story from the nineteen sixties. You know, I had a lady that came to our first meet and greet that you came to, and she had a sighting from fifty years ago, and she'd never told anybody. I was the first person she ever told, and that was from the Nullarbor on a on a station, and it was running alongside the Ute. Her husband was driving. She was in the passenger seat. Didn't say it didn't say what she was looking at because she knew he'd shoot it first chance he got so she just shut her mouth and let it run alongside the ute for 20 meters and take off into the scrub and 
yeah, she sat on that siding for 50 years. So I am a bit of a repository for information. Um, I'll probably die with a lot of secrets because a lot of people don't want me to tell their stories. Or if I do, I have to keep their name out of it, and that's fair enough. Um, I found that when people would tell me their stories, they, they would tell me that they haven't told anybody else, like their wife doesn't know. That's something they're not, they're not too... Yeah. And most of the time your wife laughs at most things that you say, don't they? Yeah. That's probably why. <laughs> That's right. I understand. Probably yeah. not a bad thing to keep some secrets from your wife anyway. Let's, um, but, you know, in all seriousness, we we get, you know, a couple a week on some sometimes. I mean, we've had, you know, a good eight or nine, I think it is, from South Australia this year. And some of them were from up north near the Flinders. A couple of them were from the Adelaide Hills. Um, one was from the foothills of Adelaide. And all, all walks of life? You're not just getting... No, it's absolutely random. It's totally random because it just happens to anyone who's in the right place at the right time. Um, of course, when you're out in the country, they're typically farmers and things like that. And country people know their land. They know their animals. They know the difference between a mangy fox and a, and a striped dog-looking thing. Um, so we take them very seriously we, and we, we, we sort of listen for the same sort of details that are the common factors in describing the animal and yeah I've, I've had I think probably two bogus sightings where people have obviously been lying to me just making stuff up and the other few hundred that I've received in the last two years have all been as far as I can tell pretty well legit so I do have a lot of faith in people and what they tell me and what they ask me to keep secret when I saw your doco, in fact, before that, when you told me of some of the people that have come forth with sightings, I knew a couple of them. One of them I used to work with, just an average guy, when I was a projectionist many years ago in a cinema, and another guy, a farmer up the road, who I know quite well too, just just regular people. Yeah, and, and Les that you mentioned that you used to work with, he saw it five or six times, and his wife was a bit of a sceptic. And she was coming home with him one night and she saw it too. So her scepticism <laughs> went out the window then. So, you know, it's a profound thing. And when, when you see something that unusual that's meant to not exist, it, it sticks in your mind. You know, you, you do pick up quite a few details. We had one from um, Flagstaff Hill in March last year and they're also in the doco. And... Um, for those who don't know, that's pretty close to suburbia here in Adelaide. Right on the edge of Adelaide, but Sturt Gorge and the Sturt River is right behind it, and it's a great tract of bushland that goes all the way up to where we are, virtually. Um, so it goes right up into the hills. So, um, you know, these these uh, rivers and creeks uh, with little remnant stretches of bushland through them are perfect cover for an apex predator to just cruise along. You know, I've had sightings from the top of Unley Road from 1997, in broad daylight, um, and we had a few headless koalas turn up in that same sort of area a couple of years back, and um, we have reason to believe that thylacines like to bite the heads off of things and eat their brains, which is, sounds pretty gruesome, but we do find a lot of kangaroos with their heads missing, and quite often um, the neck cavity's been opened up and they take the heart and the lungs as well, which is very typical of a blood feeder like a thylacine. So we know for a fact that they were on the mainland, don't we, Neil? Yeah, we do, because we uh, have plenty of fossil records of them. We have fossilised trackways of their footprints as well. Plus we had the Mundrabilla specimen back in 1964, 66 on the Nullarbor. Um, that was a, a very interesting specimen because it was in a cave that was full of limestone and 
It was allegedly 2,000 years old according to the carbon dating test, but it had maggot casings next to it, it had an eyeball, it had a tongue, and it had that black oozy goo under it that decomposing animals have. Visible stripes. Definitely a thylacine. Oddly enough, though, it was only three feet long from tip to tip and it was fully grown. So dwarfism, whatever you want to call it, stunted because of the heat and the extreme conditions of living on the Nullarbor. I'm not too sure why it was small. It was apparently the same species as the Tasmanian one, but half the size. You think it maybe fell into the cave when it was young and just survived on the little animals that fell down with it? No, I think it probably fell into the cave less than six months before it was found and died. Um, And the interesting part of that was that the guy from the museum who took it out of the cave and took it to the Western Australian Museum, he was convinced it was fresh. He was never convinced that it was 2,000 years old. He always said, and his name was Athel Douglas, uh, he's no longer with us sadly, but he was quite adamant that the, the carbon dating testing was incorrect and he said it was tainted by the limestone in the cave and water running through that limestone giving an incorrect dating. And he went back 12 months later to see if another one had fallen in and oddly enough a dingo had fallen in. And he said the dingo was 10 times more decomposed than the thylacine and it was less than 12 months dead. So... If you want to compare apples, I'd say I feel very, very confident that that animal was not 2,000 years old. It was just had too many. I mean, it still had an eyeball and a tongue. Um, and you can talk about mummification in caves as much as you want, but to have maggot casings and then to have a dingo, you know, 12 months later to compare to that looked 10 times more decomposed than the thylacine did, I reckon the jury's in on that one. Compelling. And what about the humerus bone found in northwestern WA? Well, oddly enough, Dr. Michael Archer, who's the fellow that's been, you know, trying to clone the animal, um, he did some excavations in a cave in northwestern Western Australia. Now, in the layer of sediment that he was in, everything that was coming out of that sediment was less than 80 years old. He found a thylacine humerus in the same layer of sediment. So he concluded that it must be 80 years old because it's in the same layer of sediment. So, you know, to say it's been extinct on the mainland for 2,000 plus years is just narrow-minded and based entirely on a lack of evidence that does or doesn't exist. But as you would be well aware, lack of evidence isn't an evidence of a lack. It just means you haven't found it. Mm. Um, If plenty of people have seen it, then... You know, if you gave the statistics to a mathematician and they crunched the numbers, they'd say there's absolutely, definitely something in this. Statistically, it has to be there. But you give a bunch of numbers to a scientist and they're going to say, where's my taxon? I need something to cut up. That's my concrete evidence. And I respect that. That's not a bad thing. And it keeps us honest. Um, And it just makes me more headstrong and more determined to try and find the bloody thing. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, yeah, I think that when Dr. Archer found that humerus, we should have been making a claim. Well, it's only been extinct for 80 years. I mean, that would make sense to me. But because it's only one portion of one animal and not a complete body or whatever, um, no large scientific findings were changed or you know, no landmark decisions were made because of that one bone. But it's a significant find. 
Oddly enough, too, Dr. Michael Archer is the same person who wrote the paper for Extinction, which has always fascinated me. Um, and I'd love to chat to him about that a bit more. I've never had the opportunity to do that, sadly. But, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to be talked about there. I'd like to talk about the man who wrote the species off or talk to the man who wrote the species off. I mean, he was asked to do that. That was his job. He was paid to do that as a zoologist. Um, I think he started writing the paper in 1978 and it was finished by about 1982 and we had to wait till 1986. The 50-year mark. Yeah, the 50-year mark of a lack of a definitive body. It does mention sightings as well in that definition, but sadly... No one seems to be able to confirm a sighting. I mean, Hans Narding saw one in 1982 in Tassie and National Parks believed that he saw one and they investigated the area for nearly two years, but we still let it get declared extinct, oddly enough. So there's probably a bit of commercial interest in that, especially with Tassie, with the logging industry down there and they've got a lot of money invested in, in the timber industry and stuff, which is fair enough. Um, we need industries. Um, but I think it was... It was probably, oh, well, we haven't found one, let it go. Next. I think that's why it's great what you do. These people that see an animal, they believe what they've seen, whether whether or not they have. Um, some maybe have, some maybe haven't. But the fact is that you're there to take them seriously and say to them, yeah, well, I've had sightings in that area previously. Yeah. You know, you're there that you'll listen. You're somebody that will record that information. We've got an area down the road from here where they cross the road at a certain time of night regularly they've been seen about four or five times in the last two years i'm not going to say exactly what road but it's less than five or six kilometers from here um so at certain times of the year certain times of the night they cross the road in the same spot and one guy's seen it twice there and i've had two other witnesses that have seen it in roughly the same spot um whether it's coming out of this patch of bush or the one next door who knows but it definitely goes that way when it goes it's heading north towards Handorf and um, you know if you go in any direction of Mount Barker within 10 k's I've got sightings in just about any direction of Mount Barker so Mount Barker is definitely a hot spot um, around the back of Handorf is a bit of a hot spot a bit further out down towards my Ponga is also another hot spot got lots of sightings in and around that area too but you know I'm only one person and I can only be in so many places at once, usually only one. <laughs> so, How much work does go into all this now? What, what do you put into it weekly, monthly? I probably put about at least 50-70% of my spare time into this, yep. whether it's just sitting online chatting to people, doing emails, chasing people from different government departments that I need to talk to, going to the museum and relentlessly looking through old diaries and notes and things like that um doing podcasts doing, doing podcasts pod with guys like you um on cold summer nights in yellow hills yeah yeah so yeah I, I put nearly all of my weekends into it probably two weekends a month i'm out so I, you do get out into the bush yeah i'm not going to find one watching telly no, no. you got to get you off set, that couch you set camera traps and, and yeah stuff like i do i've got about a dozen camera traps that i use myself we had a gofundme campaign on facebook which has been very successful we've raised ten thousand dollars we've actually nailed it great and we've distributed 
trail cams to different members who are keen to have a look in Queensland, Victoria, Tasmania, Western Australia and South Australia. Should haven't got anyone anyway. in New South Wales representing the group, but we've got people out there looking. We've put that money straight into equipment, you know. Um, we had to buy another camera to finish off filming the docker because we were using borrowed equipment. But it's basically all gone in equipment. I've spent, you know, I get accused of being some sort of charlatan that steals it for beer and pizza and whatever. But I've probably spent, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 out of my own pocket just chasing this thing around, be it on fuel, batteries, SD cards, cameras, uh, the odd caravan park when you're sick of being in a tent. Um, things like that. So it certainly does take up a lot of your time and money. It'd be awesome if someone like Richard Branson said, mate, take a year off work. Here's a hundred grand. Go and find the fucking thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've known you for a while now and I can say that's a hundred percent true. Um, I'm completely impressed with the work you put in and you do, you put everything back into it. There's no scam there. Like I said, I've known half of the people that do the sightings and I've seen, I've seen the cameras that the people are using. There's people all over the country capturing footage and, Fingers crossed they capture a thylacine. There's some really good ambiguous videos out there. We're the, we're the absolute kings of ambiguous videos. <laughs> um, there was a really ambiguous video that came out of Tassie in September last year, and there was a lot of hype and build-up leading up to it, and we're all hoping that it was going to be awesome footage, and it was really average, and it was definitely a qual. It wasn't a thylacine. They had an awesome sighting that they talked about. And that was great, you know, I believe their sighting, I don't doubt their sighting, but their footage was a lot less looking like a thylacine than some of our mainland ones, but because it was from Tassie, it was sort of expected that that would be the the bee's knees, and sadly it wasn't, it didn't live up to the expectation that we all had, so um, that doesn't mean that, you know, they're not credible people, it just means that I don't think they filmed a thylacine, and a lot of other people didn't think they filmed one either. We've had videos from Western Australia, we've had a couple from Victoria, a couple from South Australia. It's not from a lack of trying. We are definitely trying. We're not hurting anyone. We're not stealing anyone's stuff or their money. We're not doing anything fraudulent. There's nothing dodgy about what we do, regardless of what all the hype um, may or may not be online about what I do and don't do. Um, Don't worry about the haters, mate. You haven't got anywhere unless you've got a hater or two. Well, you know, it's the tall poppy syndrome in this country. As soon as you stand up and poke your head up, someone wants to knock you off your perch, don't they? And that's fine. You know, I'm happy to take that. I I, I don't really care who proves it as long as somebody does and the evidence doesn't get buried in some university frigging laboratory where they don't want to let it out because they don't want a stampede of crazy people. Good luck. If you want to go to North Queensland in that hot tropical heat, running up and down those mountains with all the leeches and plants that want to eat you and kill you and sting you and bite you, you know, you sleep in your friggin' sleeping bag on the ground and you get eaten by a friggin' python up there. So, you know, I don't think they've got anything to fear about a stampede of people finding these things if we say, yes, they're definitely there. There are that many places to hide. There are thousands of sightings. We've investigated dozens of them, and we can't find shit. And we are looking. I mean, we've found some really good anecdotal evidence of prints and trackways and kills um, and the odd scat sample as well. But these guys are elusive. They know how to hide. They are good at what they do. 
every now and then they screw up and someone sees one and we have this hype that we've got. But, you know, I, I, I really don't want to see one in a zoo if we do prove it. I think putting one in a cage in a zoo would be horrendous. I've got no problem with people, you know, wanting to try and help the animal, but I think you need to study it in its environment before you can ever consider taking it out of that environment and looking after it. If it's if it's been there for thousands of years and pretty well flown under science's radar at least for all of that time, we've been settled for 230-odd years in this country with science and, and European ways. I'm sure it's doing just fine. And I think with the increase of sightings, the decrease of foxes, the decrease of pressure on prey from indigenous people out there eating all the, the prey... I think the numbers are probably bouncing back to a degree because um, the sightings are increasing. So if the sightings are increasing, that's a reflection of either better reporting and people feeling more confident to come out with their sighting or the fact that the numbers are increasing, they're getting seen more often. Sooner or later, someone's going to run one over and not go to a museum or not go to a university with it and either contact me or some other nerd like me and say, hey, you need to see this. And it'll be on YouTube, it'll be on the 7 o'clock news, and that'll be it. The if it's got a baby, Tam can hand-raise it for wildlife education. <laughs> oh, I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, if you want to take a baby from a mother thylacine, be my guest. If, it, if it's dead, if it's dead. Um, <laughs> did anyone ever make an effort back in the day to domesticate one? Yes, there are some writings of that in Tasmania from Dr Bob Paddle's book where he found quite a bit evidence, bit of evidence um, regarding pioneers down there that took some young and kept them and hand-raised them. Um, and the animals were reasonably tame. They weren't vicious or anything, but they were still wild. They still had it in them to leave and go and do their thylacine thing. And they would smell other thylacines from you know a couple of miles away. They could smell someone coming you know, 20 minutes before they got there. So they're incredibly intelligent sensitive animals and i think because a lot of the the hatred towards them in tassie they were labeled as a dumb stupid kind of animal but i don't think they're that at all i think they're a lot smarter than most of the people i know um probably smarter than me too um because they just managed to fly under the radar so well they do leave telltale signs that they're around though we've had you know last year i had probably a half a dozen headless kangaroos just in the northern part of the Mount Lofty Ranges. You mentioned a whole heap of headless kangaroos out towards Lake Alexandrina in one of the towns out there. Um, and, you know, there's not many animals that will just bite the head off of a kangaroo and go away with its heart and lungs and leave the rest. Foxes tend to go in through the behind and take the soft tissue and they'll eat the offal um, because they're flighty and they're, they're quick feeders. You know, they're in and out. They just want to grab a quick bite to eat and they're gone. Um, we get some really strange kills where animals have basically had the skin peeled off them to their spine and every bit of flesh is gone from the ribs and bone. Like there's just bones and skin. And that sounds as though to me like a big cat. That's the way cats feed. Uh, lions and things like that feed like that. They don't leave much on the bones. So, you know, that is evidence. It's evidence of something. It's not proof. I'm not saying that that's proof, but it is evidence to support x y and z now there's only so many x y's and z's that it could be so and you know some of the footprints we find as well are definitely not cat 
definitely not fox. And as far as we can tell, they're definitely not dog either. They're too big. I've got a print from Tea Tree Gully from 18 months ago that's eight inches long and nearly five inches wide, and I can't find a dog with a foot that big. Um, so, you know, we get written off as being a bunch of crackpots because we haven't got the ultimate proof. Trust me, if I find the ultimate proof, I'm going to shove it up every doubting Thomas's nose so far that we're wearing it for a hat. <laughs> so, um, rightly so. Yeah, because you know we cop a lot of criticism for just innocently going out there and trying to find it. So you know, it's one of the things about human psychology, though, isn't it? You'll get 120 pats on the back about your doco. You'll get two pieces of criticism, and you'll um, probably spend more time thinking about thinking the about criticism. It, yeah. yeah. So. Rest yeah. assured, I haven't. I've had I've had that much negativity thrown at me. My skin is now about two inches thick, and Teflon coated, so they can <laughs> say what they want. It doesn't phase me anymore. I really don't get upset. I used to get into lots of online arguments with people and created a bit of a, um, I suppose, an image of me that a lot of people have got online in different thylacine groups. They have their opinion of me, and that's fine. They're entitled to that. Um, but yeah, I don't get as argy-bargy as I used to about it. I just haven't got time to waste arguing with people. I just want to get on with it and put the put the facts on the table. You've only got so many minutes in a day. That's you, right. There's only so many thoughts you can have and you want to utilise those while you can. Absolutely. Well, I think we all appreciate the work you put in. We, uh, we all want to see a live thylacine, for sure. I think everyone on the, in the world would like to. So, yeah, I think keep doing it. Yeah, look, there's never an end of support. I get that much support. If I do have a flat day and, you know, every now and then we put something online, oh, I'm feeling like shit today, and everyone comes out and says, oh, you'll be right, mate, don't worry about it, you know. Um, yeah, if I, if I mention that in the group, which I try not to do because it just seems to create all this hype that I don't really want to create, but, yeah, there's, there's tons of support out there. There is far by far more support than there is skeptics and doubting people that just want to heckle um they are outweighed 10 to 1 at least so it's good you know that does keep me motivated and people giving me their information keeps me motivated because i've got something else to go and investigate so you know quite often i knock off from work and i race up to somewhere to stick a camera out or meet i'm going to meet a guy in Handorf tomorrow night who's had a sighting last year in winter i mean i had a a situation in Handorf last year, I won't say where, but there was a street in Handorf where four families lost their chickens. Everyone lost their chickens. One person saw the culprit and swears black and blue it was a thylacine that took all these chickens. Um, well, this same guy lives in Handorf and he had a sighting virtually in his backyard where it took one leap straight over a six-foot fence. So, yeah, I'm going to go meet him tomorrow and have a chat to him. So, yeah, there's always someone to talk to. There's new information every week that I really should have more time to investigate. But sadly, I have to work <laughs> to make a, money a to chase of, thylacines in my spare time. team of Neils working around the clock. Or Sir Richard Branson to come forward. Yeah. So here, dude. Give you that money. I don't even need 100 grand. 50 I'm sure he grand will after be plenty. This. Hmm? He will after listening to this. Yeah, he'll, we'll, we'll, he'll come we'll send it to him in a private email. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, dude. You'd you'd spend that at the casino on one bet. <laughs> wow. Neil, is there anything you would like to add? Um Well, I, I suppose I just want to thank everybody for their support. 
you know we've got so much um love and joy that comes from doing what we do and you know we went down the southeast last weekend and took the doco down there to three different cinemas didn't get a huge turnout didn't make a cracker when you do the budget on it all i lost money doing it but the group made money and we put that in the group's account for um you know what we want to do further afield we're going to take the doco down to tassie later on in the year hopefully um but yeah we've had so much overwhelming support from people like yourself and and other people that you know people message me randomly sometimes and say i just love what excuse me i love what you're doing for the animal it's fantastic you know have faith i guess is the other thing if you know what you saw don't be swayed by you know negativity and other people's opinions of you or what they think you saw you know what you saw uh, okay every now and then people get it wrong the bus was blue with green stripes no the bus was yellow with blue stripes or whatever that does happen and i accept that but by far um, the vast majority of the information that we get is very solid and consistent and um, i just encourage people to come forward with their information it's safe with us. If you don't want it shared, it won't be shared. If people do have um, some sightings, Neil, how do they get in contact with you? Well, they can email me to don'tbelieveMyEyes@hotmail.com, which is totally appropriate because that's the first. I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, people say that all the time. Um, so yeah, they can email me or they can just contact me via Facebook. Um, or if they do enough digging around online, they can find my phone number somewhere on a website somewhere. So I'm not going to say my phone number now. I, I saw it on the toilet wall up at the truck stop. We Did dr- you have a good time, though? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Was it worth it, Adrian? It's the same for You're anyone. You're still smiling. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's the same for anyone who wants to get involved, wants to, to help. Yeah. They, they, same ways of... Yeah, exactly. Them. I had a young lad from Mobry. He hasn't got back to me, actually, but he was keen to get out and get involved. Um, and I encourage that. I've got a guy that I met out at Gawler last week who's keen as well, and he's got some really good sightings data. Um, so, yeah, I intend on spending a bit more time with him and uh, taking some cameras up his way and putting some cameras out. Hopefully we might get something. But How many active cameras do you think you have around the country at this moment? Uh, within the group, well, just with the ones the group has funded itself, I'd say we've got in between somewhere, because you know, quite a few members have got their own cameras, but they're still contributing to the group with their bits of footage that they get. I'm going to say probably at least 50, 60 cameras out there that we've encouraged or been a part of. And we bought about 20 or 30, 25, I think we bought with our, with the group's money. Any hot tips for somebody at home with a camera trap that might want to put one out somewhere? Absolutely. Um, you need to make sure there's virtually no grass in front of it. Otherwise, you'll get a million photos of grass swaying in the breeze. Um, you need to work out what times of the day that you want them on so that you don't get a lot of photos of shadows from trees and things like that. There, There's a bit of trial and error with trail cams. Be patient. Use good quality batteries. Always reformat your cards before you put them back in because the cards can cause you grief and you put it out and it doesn't take a photo of anything and you've left it out there for three months thinking, oh, I've got something, and it's malfunctioned. So when you program your camera, always test it. Make sure that it's working okay. Um, don't have them mounted on branches and things that are going to sway in the breeze because you'll get another whole swagger of photos of nothing. I actually had 400 photos of a slug moving across a rock once, which was highly riveting stuff. 
Um, but, you know, when you've got 2,500 photos to check on one card, you've got to check every one because if you, that one you don't check might be the one. So. Are you sure it wasn't a snail with mange? Uh, it was a homeless snail. It was a slug. He had no house, no shell. If you've got that footage, I love slugs. I would like to look at that. <laughs> it was only still framed, sadly. <laughs> I've seen you've, um, you've had some footage of quails eating keel, so you've put a camera set up uh, in front of some like a dead wallaby. Yeah, when I'm down in Tassie, I've still got my house down in Tassie, um, and I go down there a few times a year, and I put cameras out in the bush near there. And if you've ever been to Tassie, you've probably seen the horrendous amount of roadkill that is there because there are no foxes in Tasmania and there's lots of those smaller uh, marsupials still around. So a lot of things get run over. So there's always something fresh that you can pick up and chuck in front of your trail cam. And I do do that occasionally. Last time I was there back in August, I put uh, bacon fat and basically I cook up bacon and I drain off all the fat and then I pour that into like a coffee cup, put that in the fridge and it'll set like butter basically. So I get that grease, put that in a snap lock container, take it out with me. And then I just dip my finger in it and I smear it on, uh, the best thing to smear it on is trees because the bark absorbs it and the smell lasts for a lot longer. And the smokier the bacon, the better. It's got that smoky, and a lot of your cheap cryovac bacon for about eight bucks a kilo is smoky as so it's got a really nice smell and a good flavour. I used to put bits of bacon out, but it just brings in every feral cat and crow within the area and they clean it up. So you don't have much longevity using bacon itself. But the grease will last. It's waterproof. And you smear I smear it on the camera. I had a Tasmanian devil come up and lick the camera, basically, because um, it was covered in bacon fat. And I would have as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Herbivores like bacon. <laughs> I've got brush-tailed betongs eating bacon. I've got wallabies eating bacon. Everybody loves bacon. So, yeah, I just smear bacon fat in front of my camera, and if there's anything around, it'll turn up and have a sniff and have a look. You'll get a, at least a shot of a fox. Thank you, Neil. You're welcome, Adrian. That Steve. Was amazing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Cheers. Anytime. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved.